Hello and welcome to the Listening Project podcast. My name is Mark Whale and in this series of podcasts I'm talking to lovers of a wide variety of music, musicians and listeners, about what it is they are hearing in the music that touches and moves them. In this first podcast, my guest is Jonathan Crowe, concertmaster of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. His chosen music is William Moulton's Violin Concerto, a work written for the legendary violinist Yasha Heifetz, a musician known for his staggering technical virtuosity, but especially, as Jonathan will emphasise, for his distinctive sound. The recording we are listening to is of Heifetz playing with the Philharmonia Orchestra, under the direction of Walton, the composer. This podcast was recorded on December the 21st, 2016, at Jonathan's home in Toronto. Welcome to the Listening Project podcast, number one, first in the series. My name is Mark Whale, and I have with me, I'm very honoured to have with me, the concertmaster of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, Jonathan Crow. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. So the way that this is going to work out, I think, is we are going to listen to Jonathan's chosen piece. He's playing the Walton Violin Concerto in February. In February, that's right, yeah. With? Uh, With the Orchestra Metropolitan in Montreal. Okay, and this is the first time you've played the piece? Yeah, it's the first time I've done it, and it's actually, it's, it's a little bit rare for me to get the chance to play, which is a concerto which is kind of standard these days, but something that I haven't had the chance to do before. Mm-hmm. A bit intimidating, you know, most of the stuff that I do I learned when I was 16 or 17, right. and coming back to it, and now it's like, oh, I, I need to actually learn a new piece and find the time for that and fit it in around all my other stuff and make sure it sounds as good as everybody else out there. Just as a matter of interest, how much practice do you have to do on something like that? Fitting it in. I'll let you know on February the 4th. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I was a student, right, I could always put aside, like, okay, today I've got six hours to put in here. I've got four hours to put in here. And I would find, you know, it'd be like kind of large blocks. These days, it's always fitting in around other things. So mm-hmm. I'd have to go back over my schedule to see how much time I actually put in, right? If I fit in an hour around teaching mm-hmm. and then, you know, an hour after making dinner or something and then, mm-hmm. you know, half an hour before a rehearsal or after a rehearsal or before a concert right. or something. Uh, honestly, I don't really know what it adds up to. Right. And I don't think uh, it's necessarily about a number, like a length, but it's these days it's about efficiency. Right. Making sure that the practice I do put in is really valuable and that can mm-hmm. just be 15 minutes really isolating one section at a break sometime. Mm-hmm. And that can be more useful than three hours of kind of like rambling through a piece and not really getting much done. And do you spend a lot of time studying the school? Um, yeah, I would say that more than I used to, which is interesting. Right. I, I yeah. used to play a lot of concertos and I'd always get to the rehearsal and I'd think, wow, why is, why is this orchestra not following me? What's going on? <laughs> I know it's, it's pretty clear what I'm doing. And that's quite, it's going to be quite interesting with this because, I mean, if we, we, we're going to listen to it in a minute. But yeah. the, the beginning, the opening is so much a... Uh, there's so much going on. There's the, a lot the going woodwind. on, and in a way it's really funny because it sounds like the violin part is really free. But now when I learn concertos, I actually put the metronome on the very first time through to make sure that I actually have a vague idea of what the rhythm should be, even if I'm doing something that doesn't need to be rhythmic, so I know where it should where fall. things are going to fit in. Yeah, and before I did that, I would find all the dress re- the rehearsals with the orchestra would be kind of... Mm-hmm. A little sketchy, and I get better towards the end. Right. And these days, it's uh, I find that oh, okay, if I know the score better and I know the rhythm right away, then I can fit myself around that right. much more easily. And if you listen to the beginning of Walton here, it sounds like the violin's incredibly free and rhythmically 
lots of rubato, but actually it's not. Heifetz is exact. You could put a metronome on what he's playing yeah. and it would be perfect. This concerto was written for Heifetz, right? Yeah, he commissioned it. 1936 or something? Yeah, around that time, 39, I think. Okay, and this particular version, so this is the second version. Right, this, it's been reorchestrated. I wonder how much, of the, how much difference there is, but as I'm playing this version, I figured it would be better to hear exactly what I'm going to be hearing okay. behind me. So let's listen to just the opening section. I think it's better okay. to warm up. You know, it's a really good question. I would say that I listen to things very differently depending on whether I'm listening to them to learn a piece that I'm going to play, uh, studying, or whether I'm just listening and enjoying it. Mm -hmm. um, specifically for this, it, when you have the part for the Walton, you get the Heifetz version, right? So you get the Heifetz fingering since it's all edited mm -hmm. by him. And you get basically what he's doing. And I spend most of that opening thinking like, well, I know what fingerings he's doing and I know where he's shifting, but how does he make it so incredibly clean that I can't hear these things, mm -hmm. right? It's unbelievable. You know exactly where he's going to shift, but he has this ability to somehow make these shifts so incredibly clean that you know he's doing a little slide there, but you can just barely hear it. And in a way, that's what's so amazing about Heifetz is that you know exactly what he's doing, but you still can't quite comprehend how he does it so well. Exactly. I mean, when you look at Heifetz, you can't see what he's doing. Yeah. You know, you can hear it. You can hear it. And yeah. and it's amazing. So in a way, I suppose I'm listening to it to try to study. It's like, well, you know, he commissioned the piece and it was written for him. This version's being conducted by Walton. Clearly, this is a pretty definitive recording, right? You know, Walton, maybe he hated it and I didn't tell anybody. I have no idea. But you got to think that everybody thought, okay, this is the way the piece should mm -hmm. be. So then you're kind of thinking, well, how do I achieve that same sort of thing? Obviously, there's a kind of, there's a romanticism to it, but there's also a clarity in the playing, which is so incredible. And I think one of the interesting things about this piece is that it can turn to something that's really swoopy. You know, you hear there's all these big slides and big octave jumps, and it can be something where it just gets 
overly romantic and all you hear is the slide between note and you don't actually hear the way the pitches move and you don't actually hear the scales going clearly. And that's interesting because the way that Walton set it up is, I mean, he starts off with this um, beautiful, uh, just, what is it, minus six or something? Um, buddy, yeah, this opening in the winds. Yeah. And then, then the violin picks it up in that, then the jump of the octave. the octave right away, yeah. The, the the rhythm of the winds is is so it's free it sounds free because it's it's not da ya da ya it's da ya da ya da 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 yeah. it's this and then the violin da ya right kind of comes in is that the first beat da ya the, the the pickup yeah and it's funny thing is the first beat is the top F sharp before that there's the pickup in the violin right. and then a little grace note right so that little grace note right. gives another feeling. It has to be actually pretty exact where it lines up because of yadam, ba-da-da-dam, yam ba yam. It has to come mm-hmm. from this wind idea. But the grace note gives a little feeling of flexibility to right. it, which is amazing, right? It doesn't feel like it's locked in and it doesn't yeah. feel in any way rhythmic. But it actually has to be so precise, precise to line yeah. up. Yeah. The, the wind writing that carries on there, um, let's just take this back. When the wind comes in, just if we if uh, listeners listen to the what's going on in the bassoon, is it the bassoon? Or what's what is that instrument? Is it just a clarinet or is yeah. it a bass clarinet? Right. I love that ascending bassoon. Will you be uh, when you're doing that? Are you listening to the wind when you're playing? Um, interesting. You know, when you're listening to a recording, you can hear this stuff way more than when you're actually performing, it, right? Mm. So when I'm performing it, I have my own sound going really directly into my left ear. Um, not much comes through in the background, right? So it's an interesting way of trying to make sure you hear what you need, but also going with the conductor, right? You have to trust the winds are going to be with the conductor to a certain point because you don't hear all that much of what's going on. Um, and it's interesting when you're listening to a recording like this, right? Very old recording, and you're used to hearing this sort of thing with a big right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that hiss has been taken out, but sometimes you lose a little bit of the distinction between what the instruments are, right? You take mm-hmm. away some of their personality to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Plus, these are not incredibly hi-fi right. speakers with this tiny little Bluetooth <laughs> thing we have here. But it's interesting, like when you hear the opening, you don't necessarily hear what cuts through other than hyphets, right? So he'd be mm-hmm. on a separate track probably, and they can kind of keep his sound, but everything mm-hmm. else gets a little bit cut out because mm-hmm. you're losing those high frequencies. You know, a lot, a lot of people would actually want to go back to the original LPs on this because they right. want to hear so that. so they can hear that, yeah. And they yeah. want to hear that, you know, typically hyphetsian sound, which is a little bit burning all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, which is amazing. No, it's, um, it's it's got this intensity to it. Yeah, it? exactly. Just it doesn't matter where he is on the violin. It's just, and that's one of the interesting things that you think about when you're when you see his fingerings. You might know that he's doing a certain thing on a certain string, but you're like, wow, he's playing that on the A string, but it sounds like anybody else's mm-hmm. E string. So then you start thinking, well, is, did he just write that fingering for us, but he's actually doing it differently, and he changed his mind? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or is it just really that he's able to find that sound anywhere? In that case, well, how? How do I kind of find that same idea? Because that's the idea that Walton had when he was writing the So what the do you think it is about the sound? Uh, you know, what is it that makes uh, one violinist sound 
so focused and inviting, if you like, or so so meaningful. I mean, in a way that actually it touches us, and another violinist sound not right. I mean, I think one of the things that you get when you're listening back to the earliest early twentieth century is you get more of a distinction between players, right? These days. You have many, many violins coming out of conservatories, universities that can play Tchaikovsky concerto really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the issues is because we have so much access to, I suppose, what is correct by having YouTube be like anybody can go and find a thousand videos of the Tchaikovsky concerto on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And if we choose our best parts from each one and make a kind of mix of that, we could create, I suppose, the perfect violinist. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't really exist, right? And when you think about when this stuff was written, these guys didn't get to hear each other nearly as much. The recordings weren't as easy to get. They weren't everywhere. So you had to spend a little bit more time perhaps in your own practice room thinking about your own sound instead of going, oh, I can just go onto YouTube and immediately find what Mm -hmm. a good violin sound is. So when you think about Heifetz, he could hear other people play concerts for sure, and I'm sure he could get recordings, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't have a, a hundred different recordings on his iPhone the way I do that I can listen to on a plane and try to figure something out. So he had to like, you know, his own sound was what he was So maybe on. it's a disadvantage to have a hundred different players. On well, I mean, in a way, it's like, I suppose the mix of the top a hundred is just going to give you something which is a little bit leveled out. Yeah. I mean, one of the amazing things about this is that it gives me great pleasure as a violinist. He flubs one little C right at the beginning of the piece. And I'm so happy to hear that. I mean, <laughs> it's Heifetz. Even he misses something. Yeah. And he famously left in things like that. He's like, oh... Just leave it in. Give him something so many to think about. So happy, yeah. and he knew <laughs> yeah. that like everybody was listening, waiting for him to make a mistake. Right. And he's like, "That's fine. They can have it. Yeah. I'm still the best." And he's yeah. right. He was like, even when Eifetz makes a mistake, it's still better than anybody else playing perfectly in mm-hmm. a way. But there is a kind of there's a distinction to the way he plays it. Like you can hear this, and you can immediately know, "Oh, that's Eifetz. Nobody else sounds the same." Mm-hmm. And that is something which is kind of amazing. And then you could you know you could hear J- Jimmy Ennis play this. And in a way, he's one of the few. You hear Jimmy Ennis play it, and you can be like, yeah, that's James Ennis. I can tell mm-hmm. right away. And that is something that I think we should try not to lose as musicians this and as listeners. I want to yeah. hear, and I don't necessarily need to like exactly what I hear, but I want to hear somebody that has their own voice, that listens to their own and sound. It's and it's getting that voice, isn't it? Because, it, I mean, it's true. You know, we could probably all produce wonderful sounds if we actually had the sound in our head. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing about producing a sound. Yeah. You have to be able to imagine you have, you have to hear it first. Yeah. You have to hear it in your head before you're making it on the instrument. Yeah. And then the rest is technique. Yeah. And we don't have Heifetz's technique, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I wish we did. But you have to have the sound in your head first. Mm-hmm. And then you need the technique to be able to do it. And I think lots of people probably have the technique to be able to do it. I think fewer people are really listening for what, what sort of sound do I want? What do I want to say? Right. So getting back to the to the concerto, I mean, how do you feel about it in uh, specifically this first movement? We've just listened to the, the beginning, which I mean, I haven't really kind of addressed. How do you feel it rates in terms of other concerti or, or is it something that touches you, that moves you, that is significant and meaningful to you? Yeah, I would say uh, it's absolutely one of the... I mean, if not of all time, great concertos of the 20th century. And in the beginning, in a way, it's like Mendelssohn. It just immediately grabs you. Right. And it doesn't let you kind of go. Interestingly, I mean, it's not like Mendelssohn where you have this immediately distinctive tune. Right? The, basically, this is just kind of a series of kind of building up of harmonies. And it goes up the step, right? And that, you kind of get payback 
later on in the piece as that allows him then to put the violin in higher higher registers right. and kind of build it up um, is it is there a sense i mean when i listened to the whole movement just a while back um you know and obviously seemingly you know this octave leap is so important this leap up because all of these sections they kind of reach a high point a very high point and then they they come down yeah. i mean it's it's almost every every section looks like a mountain Right. right, which you know, I mean, I guess music does that, but it seems to to be particularly so in this that he it starts da, 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 and starts down there, and then by the end of it, he's up at the top, and then he comes down and relaxes, and then you kind of get a sort of almost a cadenzary type bit, right. and then the orchestra takes off again, and it does right. the same thing. I would say that, and that's that's something that applies all the way through the piece too. You get this idea, of, you know, the violin starts on the F sharp, so it starts on the dominant, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't actually resolve for quite a long period of time. Um, and what happens is he always kind of builds it up, and then he brings it back to the same low B on the G string every single time. And the very last mm-hmm. note of the piece does the same thing: goes way up high, then yeah, bum bum, resolving back to that same B. So if you go over this first. Should we play this? Yeah, he does the same thing. It's all about the resolution of this F sharp, which he stretches up higher and higher onto the violin Mm -hmm. and always brings it back down to something low. He rarely resolves the violin line up high. He builds it up and he builds the tension, but then brings it back to the realm of the orchestra. This first section gets this beautiful... uh, I love the way that Walton kind of blends or all of these voices come together on a very high note. Right. He could still be soloistic. So here, you know, you see the winds and the violin answers that the octave yeah. higher and then continues pushing it up. And it, it's smart. As he's building it up here, he puts the violin in a range where he can actually be heard. Otherwise, with this orchestration, the violin would be lost. Yeah, it's quite complex, isn't it, the orchestration, in yeah. terms of polyphony. And then again, now he does a double octave jump, right? Mm-hmm. So he's, he's building up the register the whole time. And you think it's, it can't possibly get any higher than this, right? Until finally we get the same F sharp that the <laughs> violin started yeah, yeah, yeah. on. Yeah. And it still hasn't resolved to anything, right? We're in B flats here instead of getting to B. opening and then there's a changing color with the orchestra again it's an upward movement this suddenly right wild bit yeah is this difficult to play oh it's i mean it's high it's really for high fits, <laughs> yeah. right i mean it's like okay let, let's try something that only he can really do well to this right. gradually unwind. And it's going to go back up again, kind of unwinding. Yes. Way up high and then come down quickly. It was very 
very few pieces that use the extremes of register right. as dramatically as this, right. I would say. And that's, that's right. beautiful. He, he changes. This changes now. Somehow the mood changes, right? Yeah. Kind of. Is there a is it a shifting key or is it is it a shifting? There's almost a brightening. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And, and he uses the red the orchestration incredibly well, right? So he'll just kind of like leave the violin suddenly doing its own thing right. for a little while, which yeah. allows you to play a certain note without it being kind of that screamy intenseness mm -hmm. that otherwise you might need to come through the orchestra. And the way he drops, he drops the distant harmonies, right? It's, yeah. Now it's just one note. And that. And again, that, that drop <laughs> that in the lower piano. register. Yeah. Yeah. Again, beautiful writing for the wood, the woodwind. Yeah. Uh, and the, the harp's in there as well. And again, it sounds incredibly free, right? But it's actually quite complicated, the rhythms that the violin... The violin is basically written in two here against the orchestra in three. Right, okay. So if it's not quite exact, the whole thing falls apart. It can't just be something that's rubato. And those wind lines are complicated, right? It has to be quite strict. But it, it's brilliantly written and played in that you can feel like there's all this kind of musical shape going on and freedom within something which inherently needs to be very exact. Just um, we get the recap, right? Mm -hmm. Well done. Oh. You found it right away. Now the flute has the chain. right, and the violin's building up, and the winds did yeah. before. Basically, the bass harmonies. It's doing that. It's doing that bassoon line. Yeah, right? yeah. And this is this is the, the kind of writing that I love in Shostakovich. These, yeah, these, you know same time frame as a lot of Shostakovich, right, yeah. right? I wonder how much Walton was hearing. Yeah. I actually don't know how much yeah. he was would hear Shostakovich and how much yeah. made it out. Again, that octave leap. Yeah. All that same F-sharp. Yeah. sharp here in the top right yeah it's a trill to it and that same F sharp and now he gives it on a harmonic right like unbelievably fragile right yeah. so the way that just he brings it to an end and he doesn't give a resolution to that note okay and he never right. goes yum palm you just hear so this so the F sharp is the dominant which never away, yeah. resolves onto the and he feet. starts on it and he puts it in different places right and then he gives you this this high harmonic and everything but he never actually quite allows it to come to rest right because it never resolves die yum properly it always kind of jumps way around like it'll go kind of like down by two octaves or something under the D string so it, it sounds totally different does it resolve finally I mean does the last move end on a B? Yeah, it ends on a proper B. I bet it's, again, it's the same low B. You go way up high, yeah, and then jump right down mm -hmm. to the B. So there's always this kind of, not ambiguity, but there's this feeling that the F-sharp kind of floats by itself and never quite finds its resolution in these first two movements, at least. So just kind of wrapping up. So if, if there was one reason that this piece is worth listening to. Well, I think, I mean, when you're listening to anything with hyphets, and if you're not a violinist or if you're not a 
classical musician, I think listening to Heifetz, you should always be listening for sound because Heifetz, in a way, revamped the violin sound and he brought this burning intensity to everything that he did. And this is something which comes through on every recording he ever made. Even you can take out all, you can strip all these things down and redo them, but you can still hear this kind of like brilliance of the Heifetz sound. So I think in a way it's like you're listening for that and then trying to comprehend how that would sound in a concert hall. I never got to hear Heifetz live, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, imagine how that would sound in a concert hall and hearing this kind of like this burning intensity, right? And this is what makes it so incredible because you can just imagine what he's going for in his sound, what's going through his thought process. And I think you can go further back with this when it's a piece commissioned by a certain violinist, written for that violinist, premiered for the, by that violinist. You can so think, you, well, the composer had that sound well, in mind as well, right? Head, he right. wasn't just writing it for anybody. He was writing it for Heifetz. So he well, I mean, immediately it, it, had that also sound. Because, I mean, one of the wonderful things about Sir Heifetz is what you were talking about at the beginning is this ability of his to do these shifts and just, I mean, add just the, the slightest of glissandos on yeah. it. I mean, it's not a glissando. No, but, but there's, there's a, a little, there's a, a coloring There's a coloring, exactly. Across, yeah. And I think that's one of the color again, and you're talking about sound as being the most important thing. And Heifetz's sound compared, for me anyway, to the, the wind sounds. Yeah. The different wind instruments that he uses with the flute, and you've got the harp in there. Just There is an incredible amount of colour. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, okay. Jonathan. Thanks, Pleasure. Very nice speaking to you. You too. Thanks to Jonathan for his insight into the first movement of Walton's Violin Concerto, and particularly into the violinist for whom the concerto was written, Yasha Heifetz. Jonathan will be performing the work with the Orchestra Metropolitan in Montreal on February the 3rd. You can check out Jonathan's bio on the TSO's website. As well as being the TSO concertmaster, he is first violinist with the New Orford String Quartet and is Associate Professor of Violin at the University of Toronto. The internet is strewn with information about the violinist Yesha Heifetz, who died in 1987. You will find a number of his recordings on YouTube, all of them stunning. If I had to pick two, it would be his recording of the Brahms Violin Concerto with Fritz Reiner and his recording of Paganini's Motor Perpetua at the age of 17. I was alerted to this recording by a professor at the Royal Academy of Music, the great Sidney Griller, whose quartet was prominent in England in the first half of the 20th century. Griller coached many of England's string quartets but he used to give a class every week and his students would sit around while he held forth on a number of issues. And I remember him sitting in his chair and somewhat pompously talking about this recording. Heifetz played so fast that even the pianist, who just had four chords a bar, couldn't keep up. Thank you for listening and I hope you will join me for future podcasts.